Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, Thomas and Caballeros. Welcome to Leave It in the Ring, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good afternoon. I'm your host, Gabriel Montoya. Um, and joining me um, anytime now, hopefully, uh, is author and filmmaker uh, Bryn Jonathan Butler, uh, one of the best uh, writers in the game, uh, one of the best writers, period, uh, in, in any game. Um, he's also the uh, director of the, the film Split Decision uh, about uh, Guillermo Rigondeau and, and really the, the Cuban fighter's uh, dilemma about whether or not to uh, stay in Cuba or to uh, you know um, come to America and and risk everything for uh, you know millions of dollars, uh, leaving their family behind, behind uh, their loved ones behind, uh, everything they knew, uh, in order to uh, pursue this dream of of being a, you know a professional uh, boxer. Um, I'm flying solo today. Uh, I watched the fight between uh, Vasil Lomachenko uh, and Guillermo Rigondeau uh, last weekend. Uh, watched it a few times. Uh, we did the show on Monday. Uh, Steve Kim and I did uh, on the next round. Uh, but I've been really watching the um, the media backlash, I would say, um, and you know the fan backlash uh, towards Rigondeau for deciding not to fight on. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, after the uh, sixth round. Um, those of us who support Rigo or, you know, we're not even like members of the fan club, but we just, you know, don't hate the guy. Um, I don't really think of the guy as a cheater, you know, uh, something, uh, you know, a ridiculous amount of, of viewers uh, watched that fight. And I think 1.7 million. And that's their impression of him. For some of them, it may have been the first time that they got to see him. Uh, I was watching it at a fight party and, uh, you know, there was a, there was some fight fans that, that knew who he was and understood the fight and even didn't, you know, saw it for the physical mismatch that it was. Um, and that was really a, a kind of, a, you know, a torch passing or a kind of a star making showcase for Vasil Lomachenko. It was intended to be. There was other guys that, you know, were more uh, casual fans. And there were some people that just d- didn't downright, you know, care at all, but decided, hey, we're going to we're going to watch uh, a boxing match here at this holiday Christmas party. Um the ending was inexplicable, but you, you watch the reporting and everybody's saying, hey, you know, uh, Rigo's a quitter. Uh, we knew about him all along. He was a fraud. Uh, Steve Kim, my, my partner on the next round, uh, referred to him as a false prophet uh, that the cult of Rigo had been uh, believing in. And now we're not handling it well now that we've been exposed. Um, and it just made me think of, of Bryn Jonathan Butler because I'd, I'd met him back in Los Angeles when I was living down there as a writer. Um, and he's the guy that dove headfirst into Cuban boxing, uh, came back out of it uh, with some great books, uh, a book about uh, Guillermo Rigondeau's life, um, and then which also later became a film that he directed, uh, but then also The Domino Diaries, uh, which chronicles his time there. Um, he was uh, nominated for an ESPN award uh, for uh, literary sports writing, and that's exactly how I would uh, characterize what he does. Uh, he's joining me now uh, from New York, uh, Welcome to the show, Mr. Butler. Hey, Gabe. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, my pleasure, man. Thank you for uh, joining me on such short notice. Um, some of the stuff, how, how you been, man? Just uh, right off the top. Not bad. I've, I've been working on the next book, which is about chess, which has been quite a kind of ordeal. I, I'm not really of that world, so it's been quite a strange immersion to sort of drop into it for the last year. Um, and then just strange to go, you know, 10 years after I met Rigandau, for this to be potentially the last chapter, or at least the last chapter of the trajectory that he was on, was quite something to to watch. It was it was pretty sad. It was very sad. I was like, really, I didn't think. You know, I reread uh, your your piece about going back to find his family last night, and his wife saying he looks sad, doesn't he? And uh, yeah, you know, it really hit me, and and it. But I, you know, looking back at the fight, oh my God, it, it got sadder after that. And and still, even with the way the fight ended, people are kind of kicking him in the face, yelling at his Twitter account, which I'm I'm not sure he runs. Somebody told me that he does run it and uses Google Translate. Uh, other people say it's this other guy. But uh, so I immediately thought of you, and I, I wanted to know your thoughts uh, on the fight, how it ended, but also if you'd heard, you know, Pedro Diaz had came out and said that it was in fact he that pulled the plug. Uh, but we can get to that in a minute. What were your initial thoughts about the fight, and and what did you see, uh, and, and what did you think about the ending? Well, I think there was a kind of reckoning in the offing after the Donaire fight. Um, you know, I guess the biggest, the most followed, at least on Twitter, boxing writer, Raphael, with relish, has just laid into Rigo his entire career, I think quite unfairly because I think the way that he's held up what Mayweather was doing in the ring, aesthetically, he just wasn't consistent with his standards, because I think Rigo, there were definitely some fights that he stunk out that I saw, but overall, I mean, he, at the time that I made the documentary going into Donaire, he either knocked out or knocked down every opponent he fought, and he outthrew Donaire, outlanded Donaire, I thought led the dance in that in that fight, which is quite something for such a, a, a consummate counterpuncher. Uh, Raphael, I believe, actually scored the fight for Donaire. Well, I think I probably had it ten to two or even eleven to one, and many other people did as well. Um, you know, and he was in he was in that fight as a three to one underdog. You would have thought that that could have launched him, that it sort of validated other. Cuban greats who'd been dismissed as amateurs, you know, which was something, a kind of uh, headwind that I ran into writing about them, dealing with them as if they really stood a chance against their respective counterparts in the United States. Uh, I guess most prominently with Teofilo Stevenson and Felix Sabone with Ali and, and Mike Tyson. Uh, I thought what Rigo did, did a lot, not just for himself, but also for all Cuban boxers and the sort of sacrifice they made, the ones who stayed behind. Um, and he did it, you know, relatively late in his career, especially for a little guy, which, which to me added to the luster. And I, I was rereading something that Charles Farrell, a writer for Deadspin, wrote that Rigo, sooner than later, and I think it's from two or three years ago, is going to have to fight somebody a lot younger, a lot bigger, and um, they're finally going to get their scalp. They're going to get even with them. And, and there was a tinge of that for me watching him to see him at 37 bulked up fighting somebody uh, of, of such sublime caliber in Lomachenko 
younger, mm-hmm. just so much bigger and, and, and better on the night. Certainly I'm not trying to take anything away from Lomachenko, but he admitted as much himself to his credit to say, you know, this guy's a King in his own weight class, but I'm too big. And the only reason I fought him was because he called me out on social Twitter and what Rigo's manager told me in, in a hotel room when I interviewed him a few days before the fight was, it's absolutely not Rigo who's on Twitter. They've hired somebody who's in Las Vegas. So it's, it, I don't believe it's ever been him, uh, either mm. the boisterous version on Twitter or when he's nasty and talking smack and that kind of thing. So it sort of solved that mystery for me, and that's directly from the camp. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's strange that you know with Rigo, you know because he did stink out the joint a couple times. Um, Certainly, but he was also becoming the youngest, or you know the uh, in his career uh, champion in in boxing history, and there's never really been any sort of credit for that. You know they give him the footnote, but the fight stunk. Um, and you're right. I love that you brought that up. It's like little guys, they age faster than everybody else. Heavyweights take a little bit of time to mature, but it's not true for the little guys. And I, I wonder, you know, considering how much you, you, you much time you spent in Cuba and around him, do you think we ever even saw his best or did we see echoes of oh. what he was? As a- oh no, I absolutely don't think we saw him at his best. Uh, we know, and I, I saw it myself the first time I met him actually 10 years ago, 2007 was the first time I met him at the gym I was training at in Havana. He was smoking cigarettes at that time and that's right after Fidel threw him off the team and another reporter I spoke with Ray Sanchez who interviewed him at his at his house right after the attempt of defection in Brazil during the Pan Am Games that summer of 2007 said he was drinking the high alcoholic beer as well so he didn't know if he would ever fight again at that point and wasn't training I heard another account that he'd actually gained a bunch of weight I didn't see evidence of that but, I mean, he's, he's been through the ringer emotionally, and there was also a, a hiatus of two years before he got back in the ring when he became a pro and, and stepped in the smuggler's boat, went to Mexico, and found his way to Miami. Um, if you watch the Rigo, go on YouTube and watch him in the 2004 Olympics when he's 24. I've never subscribed to the idea that he's lying about his age. I, I, I've never seen proof of it, and... You know, he, he fought his first Olympics in 2000. He would have been 20. He fought his second when he was 24. It's not like baseball. It's not like El Duque where you're going to sign a major contract over a number of years. I don't think the incentive is there so much to lie about something like that. And I've just never seen any evidence. So it sounds good. And another way to sort of thumb your nose at Cuba and all that or Cubans. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't think we ever saw him at his best. But, I mean, he even – Away from his best, I mean, he was, I think, up there in the pound-for-pound ratings. And if you talk to boxers, when I spoke to Andre Ward or Roy Jones, um, they weren't shy about expressing how good they understood him to be. It was really writers and some fans who took their cue from writers uh, where he just had this very nasty reputation and, and he didn't help his case either because he was not very personable. I think he was dealing with a lot emotionally as, you know, I tried to write about leaving behind a wife and two kids and the culture he came from. Uh, it, was, it was not an easy ride, and, and he didn't handle it maybe as gracefully as some would have wished. 
You know, I interviewed him at the wild card when he was still training with Freddie when he first got there, like out in the parking lot. And it's weird. I've seen people refer to him as Surly. Over, you know, Steve has called him that. A few other people I know have called him that. I never got that impression. I actually made him laugh. Uh, he was arrogant. I, he felt like a, a short king. You know, here's mm. this guy that's great, but he's kind of tiny. And he's at the best gym in the world. And it's not going well. You know, Freddie's telling me he's boring me to tears because he won't throw punches, but he's a defensive master. So he's still holding his own and keeping his respect. You know, but I didn't get surly, you know, and that was, but that was early on in his journey. I was going to ask you about that trope that, well, you know, they're Cuban or they're Dominican or they're Haitian or whatever, so we don't know how old they are. You know, they're probably 50. Where, do you th- where does that come from? Is that, is it come from Il Duque? Does it come from baseball? Is there a particular scandal that all these guys have been washed with? I, I believe I there is, that. and I think... I, I think the most famous case is Duque, and I think Duque was proven to have lied. They did produce his, I think, his driver's license or some kind of documentation that contradicted the age that he was trying to pass himself off with. That's in uh, uh, the Duke of Havana by uh, Ray Sanchez and Steve Sainaru. Great book. Um, and I think that he was the main Cuban athlete that everybody knew. I mean, took took the Yankees or help the Yankees, I should say, get to the World Series and put on a phenomenal performance. Um, so I just think everybody just rolled that they all must be lying, which is a pretty lazy <laughs> blanket um, perception that I, I, I haven't really seen backed up. I mean, Luis Ortiz is another one who gets questioned about his age all the time. He must be 50, pushing 50. You know, he's admitting to being in his late 30s. He doesn't there's nothing conspicuous to tell me he's a lot older than that. Maybe he is. I don't know. But it's interesting. Yeah, I'm going to lie about my age. I'm not going to say I'm 40. <laughs> right. Know, or right, right, I'm right. 39. <laughs> I'm going to make it to my bed. Yeah. But, and I agree with you. I mean, I think he, he could certainly be a little standoffish. But there were many moments I had with him um, where I would see him and he would embrace me with a big hug and there was warmth. And the one exception to his demeanor where he was always uniformly kind, generous, and, and boisterous was with kids. The moment you'd see him with kids, he would open up, and kids adored him. Wherever I saw him in Ireland, in Tijuana, with Mexican kids, uh, often at the wild card as well, um, kids just loved him, and he loved kids. And it, it brought home, at least for me, what it must have been like to lose two kids. And, and he still hasn't seen them that he left behind in Cuba. He has a new son now in Miami with a new wife. But uh, to me, it signaled a bit of that pain. And, and, of course, as soon as he came over, when you saw him at Wild Card, uh, right around that time, he learned that his mother had died. And mm. um, actually going into the fight in Dallas, where I think he won his first interim title, he heard his son was seriously sick. And uh, he was worried that the same thing could happen that happened with his mother, you know, losing another family member since he'd left. So he's factor in a little bit for me to extend some compassion to the guy. But as I say, he's done a lot to reporters and some people who've approached him who, who he's rubbed them the wrong way. Uh, going into the Lomachenko fight, he was invited to Bristol, Connecticut, to ESPN headquarters. And he just brushed it off and said, I'm not interested I'm suffering from jet lag from the flight up from Miami, which is a preposterous claim. 
Um, yeah. But he just he just doesn't play the game, and it's it seems like the person who loses out the most from that approach is himself. I wonder if that's not cultural, though, in some sense. I mean, I'm sure somebody somewhere along the line said, dude, this is how we do it here. But if you're not growing up in a capitalist society where, you know, people can get Twitter famous, you know, much less actually mm. famous, uh, maybe he doesn't have that same value. You know, it's like, look, I'm a great fighter. Let me look at my product. Tell me what you think. But I don't need to talk about it. I know Miguel Cotto was kind of like that. He didn't. You know, uh, even though it's, they're not communists in, in Puerto Rico, but, but uh, he didn't like to talk about it too much. He liked to just be about it. But let me ask you this. Um, what happens to the family? He has a new wife and a new son. Before he left, did he know and why didn't she come with him and why didn't they come with him? But do they just know that's the deal? I'm never going to see you again? Or is there a hope that maybe I, I can get you through if I make enough money and we can go through this process of smuggling you? Well, that's, that's a bit of a mystery um, and a big reason why I went to interview the wife and kids, uh, which I thought would be sort of uh, a point of no, no departure for me or sort of crossing a certain Rubicon because he told me that the house was under 24-hour surveillance by two state cameras. And I found out where they lived and knocked on their door and the wife greeted me and, and the kids were inside and, and I interviewed them on camera. They showed me a lot of photographs they had of their dad, and, and they spoke so well of him and, and mourned, mourned him. You know, they were desperate to see him, and they said explicitly he would never abandon us. We're very confident that we're going to see him. He's sending money back and that kind of thing. Is it true? Was she saving face in front of her kids? I don't know. What I know is that he did start a new life um, in Miami, he did, uh, I don't know the circumstances of how he met the new woman that he married, um, who's the mother of his child, but some things happened. And it's, you know, he is adamant that he does not want to talk about the past, really about anything. The circumstances of him leaving, it was very hard to get him to talk about it. He was very resistant and prickly. He was fearful of um, consequences from the state in Cuba, punishing his family back there, uh, him attempting to leave in 2007 the first time, split his family. His father disowned him for disloyalty to what the revolution offered his family. I think he has seven brothers and sisters. He grew up on a coffee plantation in Santiago de Cuba on, on the eastern side of the island, very rural, um, while his mother supported him and wanted him to have an opportunity to come to the United States and make the most um, monetarily from his, his talent. So he's, it's, it's very complicated, and, and he, like a lot of people who've had to step into a smuggler's boat to get over here, the circumstances are pretty, it's, it's muddied by a lot of risks and dangers, and the people who are paying to get him over not the best people, uh, the Mexican cartel diversified their portfolio from drugs to include human smuggling. So he, he did confess to me once that it was the most traumatic event of his life. And anybody who's sort of saying that this fight with Lomachenko is emblematic of the true nature of his personality, that he's a coward, I, I just think it's preposterous. Um, 
There's, he's never quit, as far as I know, in any of almost 500 fights. So this one, he has a hand issue, or he just recognized that he was going to suffer a beating. Um, you know, it's fair, I think, to compare him to other greats who would never give up and say he did. But there's a lot on the other side where this guy has shown some real courage. Uh, Donaire calling him out, for example, to say, I never quit. This guy did quit. Well, in my view, Donaire did not fight Rigo after he felt his power. He basically just survived the fight, uh, didn't risk getting knocked out. And, you know, so I just think it's an easy opportunity to kick somebody when they're down. He could have gotten on his bicycle, or maybe he couldn't have. We don't know anything about him other than this fight at 130 pounds. We know nothing about him at 126, right? So, you know. And, 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 and he's at 37, you know. Yeah, exactly so it's, uh, right. It's a different version. Yeah, and I, I, um, it's interesting that after the fight, people kind of threw that out. You know, oh, well, you know, it wasn't about age. It wasn't about the weight. It was about skill. And I just, I, I find that just absolutely unfair. Uh, you know, Lomachenko is a hell of a fighter. I'd like to see him against somebody that's actually, you know, in his weight class, it's prime, uh, maybe one of the other champions, you know. This fight, I think it was that kind of get-back fight. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Top Rank and uh, Sergio Martinez's relationship, that he spoiled some plans, but ultimately they got him in the end with, with uh, the Cotto fight. Um, you know, Americans, myself included, uh, I feel like we've been handed this Cuba bad, America good. We don't really know why. We have this animosity. Um, can you? I don't know if you agree with that, but it seems like most people have this feeling about Cubans, but they don't really know why they haven't have a point of view that isn't that clear. Because um, it's a murky situation, right? I mean, they're not. We've been we've kind of been uh, freezing them out for so long. Uh, they've suffered greatly because of that. Uh, but then also the regime there has has made the people there suffer as well. Uh, there's a lot of suffering going on, but it, it uh, to me, it, it just doesn't, uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you, because I, at least my relationship to Cuba is rather tenuous, and I, I thought maybe you could shed some light on on, on Cuba, and, and, and maybe give us a little bit of reason to, to feel compassionate for the people there. Because I, I just think about that family, and, and just the Rigondo family, the people that are left behind, and him, and it, it's heartbreaking to think about, that this is what the guy yeah. has to do to try to try to have a life, some freedom. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think an interesting feature of, of this departure that, that maybe people could be sympathetic to in terms of his reasoning, and one of the reasons, you know, with the book and the documentary was I've heard everybody on both sides weigh in about the choice that these people have made to stay or to leave, but they're not really weighing in on how insidious the choice is itself that these people are forced to make. And I think there's responsibility for that on both sides of the 90 mile. Mm-hmm. When you talk to the athletes themselves, you know, in Rigo's case, for example, you could look and say he was throwing away his family, just wanted the money and to cash in and didn't care about what he left behind. But what he told me when I asked him was, if I lose in the United States, you know, I'm one punch away from permanent disability or death um what happens if i brought my wife and kids over here is anybody if i fight the style they want if they want me to be a traditional mexican fighter where it's it's blood and that's what's honorable which is not my style 
um, if I lose, is anybody going to help me pay the rent? Is anybody going to help me if my wife or, my, or one of my children gets sick, help me with the medical bills? Isn't the number one reason why Americans go bankrupt a medical-related issue, which is true? Yeah. Um, is, is, true. is anybody going to help my kids if I can't pay their tuition, if they're smart enough to be able to get into a top university? Is anybody going to help me with the tuition if I can no longer earn a living? I lack an education to get a good job to, to really provide for my family. Um, in Cuba, uh, the roof over our heads is guaranteed. No, nobody is homeless in Havana, which is the first thing I notice coming from New York, where I've been for the last 10 years. Homelessness is rampant in Manhattan. You know, as soon as I walk out my door, I'm confronted with it. Every time I ride the subway, usually there's several people who are passing through begging for money or for food. That doesn't exist in Cuba, which isn't to say that they aren't enduring real hardships, um, which is certainly why so many have left, is they are looking for opportunity. But even labeling Rigo as a defector is a very loaded term, which is not really how he sees himself. He was looking for financial opportunity the same way many immigrants who come into the United States are, and none of them are being labeled as defectors. I've never heard a Mexican be labeled as a defector who came here to seek employment or to go to school and uh, become a landed immigrant. Um, nor a Filipino. Man, nobody is referring to Manny Pacquiao if Pacquiao wanted to live in the United States as a defector from the Philippines. Um, <laughs> Rigo had no interest in defecting, uh, in leaving Cuban society. All he wanted was to earn the money that he could as a professional boxer. Otherwise, if he were permitted politically, he would have lived in Cuba. He would have stayed. That's what he told me. And And so we don't we hear about all the things that are missing in Cuba. What we don't hear about is, is so many of the things that seem um, absent. I guess like my, my reaction arriving in Cuba was I've never seen a culture so vibrant. I've never seen because everybody's so educated. The literacy rate is one of the highest in the world. Um, as I say, no homelessness anywhere. Um, there was a sense of community that I'd never seen from where I came from, where I didn't know who my neighbor was growing up. And when there's a common sense of struggle, it does bring people together. I mean, right now in the United States, I think we're seeing a more divided society than at any time since the Civil War. And obviously there were divisions in Cuba because of politics, because a million Cubans had left, many risking their lives, many losing their lives to get to Florida or to get to other parts of the world to start a new life. Um, but these were people embarking on one of the craziest gambles in the world, which was to stand up to the most powerful nation on earth. And as much as when, you know, I come from my father being in high school, telling me stories about during the Cuban Missile Crisis that they would every, every week or so be taught how to hide under their desks in case of a, a nuclear oblivion, you know, a bomb had gone off or something and, and that yeah. Castro wanted that to happen. Um, you know, so I had a very negative view, not negative view, but just uh, these must be crazy, crazy people. They're led by a lunatic who, <laughs> who was one of with a giant th- beard. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and one of two actors with, you know, Kennedy and Khrushchev uh, or, you know, who wanted the, the earth to explode with the cold war. I mean, God, the idea that it's a cold war. I mean, we were right at the brink 
I mean, the closest the world's ever come to, to being destroyed was the Cuban Missile Crisis so far. And so how could this be a society that would support something like that? They must be completely nuts. But that's not what you see when you go there. You, you, know, you learn that before Fidel Castro, for example, um, Afro-Cuban families like Rigo's, um, uh, there was a kind of apartheid that existed in Cuba that Castro ended which isn't to say racism ended, but it is, to, it is to say that blacks were not able to get into the, the schools. Blacks were dying from curable diseases at, at insanely high rates. Parks were forbidden to blacks. And four out of five of the revolutionaries after two years in the Sierra Maestra who marched into Havana were illiterate. And now 90, 99% of that society is literate. All cultural events are free. All sporting events are free. School is free. Medicine is free. Everybody has a place to live. Now, it could be many people in the same space, which is a big privacy issue, especially for young people. But these are things that mean something to those people because they have grandparents who knew what it was before Fidel came, which isn't to say some people aren't pissed off by promises that weren't delivered. Uh, There's a joke in Cuba that – if, if, if Spanish lacked a future tense, Fidel Castro wouldn't have anything to say because everything was just broken promises. But a number of things did come to pass that were a big, significant change where for a period of decades, I believe the Cubans that I met anyway, the older Cubans, believed that life could be better for their kids than what they endured. And largely there was a lot of blame towards U.S. policies, you know, having a dictator who is a puppet government of the U.S., um, Guantanamo Bay is leased out to this day for $4,000 a year, which was never negotiated by any Cuban, and I don't know how Americans would feel if, if you know, a whole state or something was just taken and occupied, and, um, you know, an annexed colony, which has been used as much as we've been criticizing Cuba for human rights abuses – We've annexed a colony of, of the, the island where we're using it as a torture camp for prisoners, you know, contrary to conventions to protect prisoners of war and that kind of thing. So it's, it's all very complicated and messy, and I'm not sure you – know, I, I didn't know it was that messy going into it, certainly, when I was 20 and first visited. And I think it's, it's difficult for us to be exposed to some things that make us question – what we've been told and why we've been told it. But any society that's turning down money as a way of defining happiness and fulfillment, we naturally assume they must be completely insane and drinking the Kool-Aid. But I saw a lot of benefits to that. I've never seen boxing, for example, with a crowd that was more enthused and crazy. And I thought um, the fighters that they produced – were exceptional and, and money wasn't driving them to be exceptional uh, until they started leaving, um, like Rigo and, and some before him. So it was um, just so many contradictions was, was what I was exposed to. Yeah, that is a trip. You know, uh, people, will, I think, will always look at the, you know, the idea of communism or socialism and they'll uh, identify them. I hope this isn't always true, but with the worst regimes that, that employed those ideas as opposed to looking at the idea. And, and even seeing, like you said, uh, when, when those ideas have some wins and some positive things to offer. Um, you, know, you, you know as much as anybody uh, about 
uh, or more than most people, uh, I should say, about the Cuban boxing system. And uh, we interviewed on Leaving in the Ring, uh, I think it was last week or week before last, um, uh, Luis Ortiz's uh, pro trainer. And mm-hmm. I was asking him about, you know, this the whole stain of him being a PED user. We went, we went through the whole, he'd been exonerated and went through the whole thing. But this, it was a kind of another trope of we don't know how old they are. The, well, they're communists, so they, you know, they really want to win. They'll do anything to win. So they probably have, a, you know, a state ram to go along with their state-sponsored boxing program. Have you ever heard of anything in there uh, in, in, among the <laughs> no. boxers like that? No. I mean, I've heard of Cubans who came to the United States who walked into a supermarket and literally passed out because they couldn't believe that there was more than one kind of soap or, or <laughs> more than one kind of any number of products. Uh, some baseball players who came over originally – uh, when they got a check, they kept it in their pocket. They didn't know what to do with a $3 million check. Where do you go with it? I mean, Rigo never had a bank account before he came to the United States. So resources were so limited over there. And you had, I, I believe, upwards of 20,000 Cubans who were uh, registered as state boxers, as, as state athletes you know, employed by the state. And, you know, so many of their coaches, of course, were highly educated. Most of their coaches I met had PhDs, but I, I just can't conceive of them having the resources to bring in steroids and, and that kind of th- stuff. I never saw it. I never heard about it. Um, it's just, to me, it's just another way to undermine them with no evidence to back it up, those kind of complaints, just like the age thing or, you know, People are looking for an excuse to to knock them down. I think it it seems much more consistent with that than you know. I've never heard of anything to do with PEDs in Cuba while I was there for eleven years, training with some of their top top fighters and coaches and that kind of thing. It's kind of easy to when we don't know anything about someone to kind of put things on them. I think you know. If anything, you know, the guys come here. I mean, there's there's more drug positives here, you know, among American boxers than there are other people. Maybe in the UK there's more. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd be curious to see how many Cubans have actually tested positive and had it, you know, confirmed over the years. Um, just back to the fight, and, you know, I'll uh, let you go here. Um, Pedro Diaz talked about Pritchard Colon in his ESPN Deportes interview. Uh, that, that that fight experience something he was thinking about in this fight as he watched Rigo, watched how dejected he looked after the sixth, and really after like the events of the fight and that he gets deducted a point for holding, but Lomachenko was, was pretty rough in there as well with his hammer fists, and, and he kept missing with mm. the, you know, over the top and landing kind of towards the back of Rigo's head. Do you think that's a cop-out, or do you think that's, that's legit? I don't know Pedro Diaz. I've interviewed him a couple times. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on him? And that take. Well, I think he. I think he I mean, I definitely can see see what he's saying in terms of the look on Rigo's face. I believe that he was confronting something he'd never seen before. I I have never, as an amateur or a pro, seen any fighter he's been in the ring with control five seconds of a fight with him, and here that it seemed like there was no place for him to hide, and I think the weight and his age. And just the brilliance of Lomachenko are responsible for that. Um, and we never know how somebody's going to deal with that kind of 
adversity to be confronted with something they've never seen before and all the you know the skill set that he's depended on and the craftiness um none of it was protecting him you know as he was trying to to get into certain um foxholes where he thought he couldn't be hit and and you know his foot movement has changed a lot you watch him in the olympics in 2004 he's a dancer well he was pretty flat-footed in mm-hmm. this fight so you know I don't know how well Rigo would have done against Lomachenko if they fought at 122 and they were in their prime and sort of everything was as equal as we could get it. I can't say that Rigo would win the fight. I I could say that in my mind, it's at least a 50-50 fight. I might give a slight edge to Rigo, but at this stage in the game, Lomachenko was the better fighter, clearly outclassed him, and Rigo was, you know, trying a lot of things. Like, I mean, even Lomachenko who, to me, that, that pivot he does where he steps in and turns and finds a fresh angle to fire, I've never seen anybody do it with the speed and recalibration that he can. And I, I don't know that I've ever seen a fighter he's done it to be able to turn with him. Like, he was, it was a very, very high level of footwork, maybe the highest there's ever been still, even Rigo at 37. But Rigo was unable, after he made that, that turn, to fire back. Lomachenko was there with two or three punches. And I think that does just erode your willpower. And I think there was a recognition, at least by the fourth round, that Lomachenko was coming on. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lomachenko's endurance is phenomenal. The speed, the technique, the skill level, um, and nothing Rigo was throwing. I believe he only landed three punches around, and none were all that significant. So I think that he was pretty dejected, and, and maybe there was an injury with his hand, I mean, a contusion, I don't know to what degree a bruise really made him concerned for his welfare, but I, I think there was just a sense that maybe everything caught up to him finally after these eight years that he's been in the United States fighting as a pro, and he just thought, um, you know, who, what, what does it benefit me if I just take a savage beating from this guy? And I think a savage beating was in the offing. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I I think I think probably he just didn't didn't want to keep going, and and I think Diaz recognized that, and you know maybe they seized on a convenient sort of alibi with the hand issue, but then it's sort of blown up because the X-ray did not show a fracture, so everybody just says, "Haha, we knew he was a coward. He always fought in a cowardly style, which is sort of what's been implied forever with his career. Mm-hmm. Isn't this commiserate with that? So." they had a narrative going in and their preconceived notions going in about how they felt about him. And this, this now supply finally supplies them with evidence. He's the worst thing a boxer can be a quitter, but I I think there's a lot more to it. And um, it seems sad to me that this fight had to happen under the conditions that it did. I don't blame Lomachenko for it, but um, you know, I think Rigo must've been pretty desperate to take this, I saw him before the fight. He was as uh, – he looked very, very unhappy, <laughs> more so than, than usual going into this. And uh, my feeling is that maybe his craftiness and wizardry defensively and, and just how effective he is as a counterpuncher, I, I think my hopes that he, he might seize the day kind of – I lost that feeling after talking with him. Just watching him before the fight, I mean, I, I picked – I actually picked Lomachenko at six. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I – watching Rigo on camera, you know, backstage on you know, ESPN, 
Yeah, I was like, he ain't winning this fight. He just didn't look. He didn't. He didn't look confident at all. You know, but why would he be? You know, um, you know, Dave uh, Duenas, my my partner on the show, actually just called in uh, and wanted to ask you a question, if that's okay, before you. Sure. Go. All right, uh, Dave, you there? I'm here, man. How you guys doing? I'm doing well. Thank good. You. Good, good. I'm sorry I came on late. I'm here at work and all, but um, you probably already answered this question, Brett. Um, but. I, here's my here's my um, thing. I think some fans are going to be riding into leaving the ring, and they're going to say, "Okay, but you've been with him, um, you've seen him, you've you've gotten you've gained a personal relationship with him. If you are yeah. not part of that circle, what would your thoughts be about him instead? If you took as yourself per- out of that equation, yeah, as a fan, as- you know. Um, so, in other words, does it justify the? The criticism and the and the just downright disrespect that fight fans have been giving them since day one, even before Nonito Dornier. Um, I think, I, me personally, I thought it became more heavy and just more cruel after he beat Nonito. It seemed like a lot of folks were rooting for Nonito to beat him, but then, then when that yeah. didn't happen, it just kind of added more fuel to the fire. But, again, the question is, okay, if you didn't have a personal relationship with Rigandau, would you still have the same view and outlook about him? I would not have the same view because, as I say, I mentioned I, I met his wife and kids. <laughs> that definitely profoundly impacted me about how I see him. I mean, watching his wife break down in tears because after she's talking about his mother dying after he left, it's hard for me just to see him as just an athlete, you know, in their right. fighting because that narrative, you know, penetrated my heart, you know, in, in relation to him, I, I met the great fighters who came before him. I spoke with them about him and their sacrifice, turning down millions to leave versus him taking it. And some of them were sympathetic with him, And, and some of them just said, you know, he was an opportunist. He didn't believe in what was, what was done before him. He put himself above all of us. He put himself above a country. He is what Fidel said. He is a traitor. You know, and that sort of thing. So it was heavy and intense. And these are all dynamics that are really complicated that require a lot of reading to sort of get the full picture, you know, which is not your, you know, why, why should we have to bring so much as a boxing fan to, to learn the guy's backstory? But, I mean, it was, it was complicated. Um, but I think, that, I think that after Donaire, I think like Raphael in particular just banged a drum that he was awful and that he put everybody to sleep, and, and there was vitriol. There was real vitriol that he faced after the Donaire fight, and I think right. a lot of people just, just followed, followed behind that. And I, I, I said at the time, I, I think if Floyd Mayweather had put on the same performance against that Donaire, against, against say, Pacquiao, Raphael would have said it was the greatest performance of the 21st century. He would have said it was a masterpiece. But Rigo does the same right. thing against Donaire, and he just says it was awful, and he's destroyed his career. And Peter Nelson from HBO, I, I was three round, three rows behind him, just said, you know, this is the worst thing that could happen as a result of this fight. This was awful. So right. there, there was just so much enmity toward him, and I thought, you know, he, he did throw more punches than Donaire. You know, he... He landed more punches, and he's the counterpuncher. Why isn't Donaire getting flack for the performance he put on? Why isn't he fighting to win? Why isn't he doing all the things that made him fighter of the year? 
He's not doing it because he can't do it. And if he tried, Rigo would knock his head off. And right. I didn't hear I didn't hear much of that. I heard it. I who I heard it from was talking to Andre Ward, talking to Roy Jones Jr., talking to fighters. They said this guy's extraordinary. This guy's a once in a generation talent. I'm learning things from this guy. And you just didn't. You know, maybe it took a little more refinement to appreciate the sort of majesty of his skills. But I mean, if you're somebody that watches a fighter's feet instead of their fist crashing into somebody's face, you could very easily appreciate just the level that he was on. And I think Lomachenko's on level too. But uh, what really just gets me, you know, is um, you know, like I was telling Gabriel, we were supposed to do a live show yesterday, but unfortunately, work held me up. But I was telling Gabriel was. Seven point million tuned into ESPN to to watch the fight. It's the second biggest uh, televised fight that was watched in history, right? And I was like, okay, seven point one million for witnessed what they believe is he quit. And to me, I think that's the that, that's enough punishment. Is that he's got to live with the fact that seven point one million people watched him turn around. I mean, not get back out off his stool. Uh, so why continue to kick the guy when he's on his on the on the ground and can continue kicking more mud and dirt? And I was telling Gabriel, I said, it's it's sad is that we as a society have become very uncompassionate. You know, this guy has yeah. a great backstory. Um, how many human beings can leave their families to look for something bigger and greater and 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 not be able to go back? You know, it's not like the immigrants that come in here from Mexico. At least they can go back and see their families. But the Cubans, they can't do that. They're they're labeled as uh, you know as they as you know as uh, they turn their back on their country, as you said. Um, yeah. So let me let me ask you this, because I've always wondered this: um, is there a, is there a backlash to the families that they leave behind? Like, do they get is that is there a penalty to the family? Like Rigo's family, did they end up uh, uh, is did anything end up happening to them um, after he had left to come here to the states? They were put under 24-hour surveillance. Their apartment had two cameras, state cameras, focused on them. Um, that's, that, that was their understanding. I went to interview them twice. The second time, they literally hid in their house. They were there, but they, they wouldn't come out to talk. So I don't know what happened between the first interview and the second. I was invited back. It wasn't like I was ambushing them. But um, right. that's where things got pretty scary for me over there because I had interviewed Teofilo Stevenson as well, and I never got permission to do any of these interviews. And you are required by state law as a journalist to get these, to get permission to interview these guys. And then you get the, you know, Potemkin village treatment that everything is perfect and it's always been perfect. So I had no interest in that. And <laughs> nobody was going to give me permission to talk about Rigo or his family. Um, you know, so I, I don't think, I, I, I mean, nobody was put in prison or anything like that, but I think they were definitely living under some strain of observation. And I know that Rigo, after his first attempt at defection, between then and when he escaped in February of 2009, um, all of the athletes and friends that he had in Cuba, and he was you know, a very popular athlete. He was on TV all the time for that attempted defection. It became a soap opera. They were all forbidden to talk to him. So he was very upset about that, that they would literally have to ignore him if they, if they were in public. So wow. he was, it was, you know, the way I heard it described by um, a reporter who interviewed him at the time, Ray Sanchez, who co-wrote the Duke of Havana, but El Duque's escape um, was like, it was like committing social suicide to try to escape and fail. 
And then he found a way off. But, I mean, it was dealing with very, very dangerous people. And many people who've taken that journey have been killed. And, you know, we heard about it with Yassiel Puig, that until the money, the ransom was paid to get him uh, once he was in Mexico in Isla Mujeres off the coast of Cancun, he was threatened with a machete to hack off limbs if the money was Wow. So these are very, very dangerous people, and, and there's a good reason why he's never spoken about it. And maybe he's not so much being an asshole with how sad or surly he is, but maybe he's just very, very badly damaged by what he's been through. Yeah, and not maybe not so uh, trustworthy, you know. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I got to get going, but here's my, here's my final thought is because um, I know fight fans, they're going to say, um, I don't care about the backstory of a fighter. What I care about is their accomplishments in the ring. And I've responded to some folks by saying, well, let's look at his accomplishments, two-time gold medalist, um, you know, the guy, uh, look how many fights he's had, and he's, you know, became world champion. Um, and I understand it. It's every fight fan's right, you know, not to care about the backstory. They care about, okay, he quit. He didn't want to come back. They don't want to continue with Lomachenko. But I just got to remind everybody, boxing is a beloved sport, not just the accomplishments of, the, of what's done in the ring, but the stories that come from behind it, the poverty that's come from behind it. It's a poor man's sport. That's what, that's what has attracted us as many fans, you know. That's why we love mm. the Rocky story. Um, sure. And uh, I got to tell you, man, I got to uh, take my hats off to you on that documentary that you, uh, that you did, that you directed. It was phenomenal. It was great. I loved it. Uh, my two kids who don't watch boxing but are fighters that box, they actually sat through the whole thing and watched the whole documentary. So I want to thank you for, for releasing that and putting it out there for us real hardcore fight fans. And, and I hope to have a chance to speak to you again, man. I really appreciate you coming on Leaving Ring, but uh, I got to get going, guys. Thanks again for letting me on. Take care. Nice talking to you. Thanks for that. Well, uh Brent, you know, I actually, uh, I don't, I don't have any. I think we've, we've kind of covered the whole thing. I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and uh, dropping that the, the knowledge of Cuban boxing. It's just, it's funny to me that, that uh, really Rigo's greatest sin in pro boxing is he's not entertaining uh, to, mm. to, to everybody. He's not universally entertaining. I enjoy watching him fight. I used to love watching him spar, uh, even if he wasn't throwing punches. Uh, but you know, this is. United States, where you know if you're super entertaining, you can be president, uh, despite all your other shortcomings. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there there are if you go through the fights, I found most of them entertaining. But unfortunately, when he had the most people watching, the greatest opportunities to really showcase what could make him exciting, those were some of his most lackluster performances. And often it's because his opponents were really afraid to throw punches. And yeah. you know, boxing boxing's moved much more into a way that, you know, like chess, it's, it's all counterpunchers, you know, from Floyd on down, nobody wants to lead the dance. So it, I understand the resistance to it. I'm a huge Arturo Gatti fan. I like, I like a, aggressive styles and that kind of thing, but I hope there's room for somebody like Rigo because what he did was certainly appreciated by fellow fighters. Very, very few people who've ever lived could fight the way he does with that degree of skill level and discipline. But I, I understand also, you know, we're, we, we're allowed our aesthetic standards, whatever they are, and, and he has his supporters and he has his detractors. I just, I just take issue with the detractors, you know, like the writers I've mentioned, where their aesthetic standards are not consistent from one fighter to another because 
Uh, Mayweather is lucrative and helps them get clicks, and Rigo doesn't, so they just relish in sort of, um, you know, attacking him with, with sort of a glee. That just seems a little unfair to me. Agreed. It's, it's punching down, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I, and I see it, and I, especially because Donaire was, was so propped up uh, as, as fighter of the year, but he, he had some, some stinkers. That Omar Narvaez fight comes to mind, uh, and, in which, you know, uh, he didn't really want to do much. The other guy didn't want to do much, and he blamed the little guy for the fight being boring. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I just don't really see it. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking forward to it. You're a Gotti fan. Uh, looking forward to seeing you write about maybe some brawlers uh, in the future. I was looking at your, your piece that just came out in the Paris Review uh, about Kid Chocolate. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, what's, uh, when's the chess book come out? Uh, the chess book is going to come out just before the World Chess Championships in 2018, which would be around December. So we're about a year away. Um, so, yeah, I covered the 2016 World Championship which actually took place, uh, I guess, 48 hours after Trump was elected. So there was a very interesting backdrop for that, that it felt like I was in the Titanic's games room after hitting the glacier, where I was in the only place in the United States that wasn't talking about Donald Trump being elected. So it was a, a very odd, interesting ordeal. Weird. I have a brother that's obsessed with chess, plays it competitively. Hmm. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what you write. Cause it, it is, it's a, it's a world into itself. It's pretty fascinating to see. But uh, yeah, I, I I saw a lot of overlap with boxing. It's a it's a fascinating world, fascinating character. Huh. No, I can't wait. I can't to read uh, to to read what you've written. Well, uh, Jonathan Butler, it has been uh, it's been great to talk to you, man. Great to catch up. Uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, enjoy New York, and uh, who you got uh, this weekend in uh, Lemieux versus Saunders uh, on your way out the door. Uh, I have to. I'm I'm just cheering for my fellow Canadians. So I'm going to go with Lemieux. I always enjoy watching him fight, win or lose. I just he just seems like a very throwback kind of guy. Oh, he's hilarious. We interviewed him early on in Leave It in the Ring, and he talked about walking to Russ Amber's gym uh, as a troublemaker carrying an axe. Uh, he's just, he's a super interesting, really funny guy. I'm I'm pulling for him too. I'm a sucker for a puncher. Uh, well, he's fun. I am too. And and he just yeah. seems like a I don't know. There's something about him. It seems like he's from 70 years ago or something. That's just very charming. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, he's definitely got that throwback feel to him. Well, cool, man. Mm. Enjoy the fight, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. You got it. Thanks again for this. Hey, my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there you have it. Uh, Bryn Jonathan Butler bringing some insight into Cuban boxing and uh, the mindset of Rigo. Uh, in the aftermath of uh, Vasyl Lomachenko uh, over uh, his, his win over uh, Guillermo Rigondeau. Um, this has been a special edition of Leave It in the Ring with a special uh, guest drop-in by uh, David Duenas, uh, my co-host. Um, gotta say, uh, I like the show better when uh, I'm just the side man. <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, it's been really fun interviewing this gentleman. Uh, and uh, I'll catch you next Monday on Leave It in, on the I'm sorry on the Leave It in the Ring Radio Network. Uh, so this is Gabriel Montoya on behalf of Dave Duenas, Steve Kim, and everybody here at the Leave It in the Ring Radio Network, saying till the next round. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>